Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you out here this morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm excited to spend some time with you this morning. Before we uh, dive into today's message, I want to take a moment to, uh, to thank you and to encourage you. Uh, a few weeks ago, I sent a, an email out to our church family, and I asked, uh, asked you uh, to join uh, Kathy and, and me uh, for an extended period of fasting as we seek uh, God's will to uh, find us a, a new worship pastor and director. And I, I told you that Kathy and I had, had made a commitment to, to fast every uh, Monday uh, to uh, pray uh, for this uh, new worship pastor slash director, and uh, I had asked you to do the, the same thing. And, and, and many of you, I, I've come to find out that you've, you've chosen to do that, and I'm grateful. Some of you are, are fasting a single meal on a, on a particular day. Others are, are going for two meals. Some of you are fasting uh, the entire day. And uh, as you forego eating, uh, you've been doing what Kathy and I are doing when those uh, hunger pangs show up. It's uh, Instead of uh, you know, going there and finding a bag of Doritos, which I'm typically looking for, uh, instead you, you hit your knees and you, you pray to the Lord and you pray that uh, God would uh, provide for our church family. The other thing that, that I know Kathy and I have been doing, and, and perhaps you've been doing too, is, is we have loved ones in our family uh, who have yet to come to faith in Christ. Uh, some uh, members of our extended family are making not so good decisions, and, and so we've also been uh, praying uh, for them. And uh, I'm just I'm really grateful that, that you're doing that. Uh, we've interviewed uh, two candidates uh, so far, uh, both of them wonderful people. They, they weren't who uh, God has for us. Uh, the present moment, there's no other viable candidate uh, in the mix that, that at least that chemistry has let me know about. Uh, but I will make sure that I keep you posted uh, as to how we're uh, progressing with that. But in the meantime, uh, I would ask you to continue to do that. And uh, I, uh, we're in it for the long haul. I hope you will be in it for the, the long haul too. And I also uh, would ask that when you're praying that you would uh, continue to pray for our uh, interim worship director, uh, Diane Rao, and the balance of our worship team. They're, they're doing a great job. Di is a, a huge a blessing to us. Uh, she's been having some eye struggles, actually had to get some shots put into her eyes uh, the other day, which totally freaks me out. Uh, so please uh, be praying for her. So uh, I'll keep you posted as uh, how we make progress. So let's get started. Uh, today is the conclusion of our study through the Old Testament book of Esther. And over the course of the last three months, uh, we've learned a, a, a number of things, but probably the, the top four that come to my mind is, number one, that, that God is always at work, even when it seems like he's not at work. We, we think, you know, God has abandoned us, left us alone, he hasn't showed up, but, but he's actually at work uh, behind the scenes. The second thing that, he, that we've learned is, is God use, uses flawed uh, sometimes morally compromised people in order to accomplish his perfect and holy purposes. The third thing that, that came to mind is this, that you know, evil may win the, win the battle, but evil never, ever wins the war. And then finally, and probably more than anything else, is, is God is faithful to deliver his people. 
God is always, always faithful to deliver his people. Now, it may not go the way that you and I would like it to go, but ultimately God is faithful in the midst of it. Now, we saw that uh, last week uh, when Mike Bongo shared with you and shared with me uh, how the Jews that are living in exile in Persia, they successfully defend themselves from the the followers of that, that evil guy by the name of Haman who sought to destroy, kill, and annihilate them, and in the process, also plunder all of their goods. And in this uh, amazing uh, deliverance, uh, it results in the Jews who are living in Persia uh, breaking out into spontaneous celebration. And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at uh, in this last section, is the the celebration that, that occurred uh, once they had defeated their enemies. We're going to look at uh, Esther 9, verse 16 through 10, verse 3. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and make your way to Esther chapter 9, starting in verse 16. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and want to use one of the uh, Bibles that are on the tables around the room, just go ahead and grab uh, those. You're going to find that on uh, page 415 on the Bibles that are scattered around the room. And with that, if you are able to stand if you would do so in honor of God's word. Esther, starting in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were living in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting and as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same same year by year as the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as a month that had been turned For them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and to cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what that had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at, a time, at the time appointed every year. 
that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews and should, and should be a commemoration of these days, or, and, nor should the, the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihal, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ashuerus and the words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed as their appointed season as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10. King Ashuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and of Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ashuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. And he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, allow me to give you uh, the first two of my three points uh, up front. I'm going to keep the third secret for time, the time being. Uh, the famous pop artist Andy Warhol once said, the idea of waiting for something makes it more exciting Hopefully that will play out. And my third point perhaps is the most exciting point that I have ever shared in my 22 years of pastoring. So that should get you right on the edge of your seats. So, all right, point number one and two, uh, we'll put them up here on the screen. First one is this, that great deliverances lead to great celebrations. When there's a great deliverance, it naturally flows into a great celebration. Number two is this, great deliverances elevate great leaders. So those are the two points that we're going to look at, and we'll kind of save the the third for uh, a little bit later here in the message. So let's look at the first one. Great deliverances lead to great celebrations. Uh, Back in Esther chapter 3, the evil Haman convinced the Persian king to draft an edict declaring uh, that all of the Jews who are living in the kingdom are to be killed in, in one massive act of violence. This edict, it's uh, distributed, as you remember, throughout uh, all 127 provinces of the kingdom. Uh, it was issued in April of that year, and uh, all of the, the murders and executions are supposed to start in March of the following year. So there's basically uh, 11, year, 11 months between the time the edict comes out and the time that the sword is going to come out. Now, I want you to think about this. These Jews, they have 11 months to think about what's going to happen to them. 11 months to realize that that they are going to, to die at the edge of the sword. They have an appointment with death. And they are not allowed at this point in Esther chapter 3 to defend themselves. Now, however, in chapter 8, in this amazing reversal that 
uh, Mike uh, Bongo, Pastor Ben, had shared with us is the evil Haman is killed, and, and Mordecai, who's the co-hero of this book, along with Queen Esther, uh, they issue a counter-decree that says on that day when the, all these executions are supposed to occur, that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. So I want you to think about that for a moment. This new edict does not wipe out the feared date. People are coming in 11 months, well, now it's less time, but people are coming in March to, to kill the Jews, but at least they get to defend themselves. Now, I'm not quite sure how comforting that would be. I mean, someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know, on March 15th, uh, people are going to come to kill you. And you can defend yourself. Well, I'm me. Like, I would lose in a fight. I would lose in a gun battle, a knife fight. I mean, I, I can't really defend myself for a while, so I'm not exactly sure how comforting. Some of you, like, you're, you're armed to the teeth, you know, you're, you're big and you're strong, you're, you're crafty, you would be able to pull this off, but I don't know how comforting that would be to me. So, uh, here we go, we're, we're going through this, and, and, and they've got this, this issue that is, is coming before them, but, but even if they know that they can defend themselves, this is not comforting. So day gives way to day, and month gives way to month, and with each sunset, the anticipation, for, or for that matter, the, the fear grows greater. And I think that probably every person in this room actually understands that. Because every one of us, at, at some point in our lives, there has been a, a fixed date, and on that date, it was filled with fear. Let me give you a couple examples. When you have a loved one who passes away, and, and that funeral service or that homegoing service is eight days out, and, and you know that you're going to have to... To, to face that moment where, where you see their body in a casket or, or their picture beside an urn, and, and you, you move forward, and, and those days come forward, and, and you're dreading that day. You're like, how can I, I possibly do that? Or, you know, or we know what it's like when the clock is just relentlessly clicking forward to the time that we're going to get this surgery. And, and, and it could be a, a life-threatening surgery or, or the date of, of a trial where, where we've been accused of something or we've been a, a victim of something. And we, that date, it just keeps coming and coming and it gets scarier and scarier. Or that time where we got to meet with an estranged loved one. And as it gets closer, our anxiety, it, it begins to, to rise. Our stomach churns. And if you're like me, sleep completely eludes you. And time, in some cases it seems like it stands still. In other ways, it's like it's just, it won't, you, if you could stop the clock, you would. 
And so, so here is, is this image that we've got. And then the dreaded date arrives. And the black limo pulls up in front of your house. Or the anesthesiologist comes into the pre-op room. Or you've walked into that courtroom. Or you're sitting across the table from a person who has hurt you deeply. And what happens? You do what you have to do. And and God does what what God has to do. And and it's hard, and and we would never, ever, ever want to go through it again. But at the end of the day, you survived. You made it through. And although it was crazy hard, we come out on, on the other side. And in some capacity, there, there is a celebration. It may look different based on, on all kinds of different circumstances. But we've come out on the other side, and we have done what we've had to do. God has proven himself faithful, and and there is a sense of relief that that comes upon us. And that's exactly where the ancient Jews have found themselves in verse 19 of Esther. Let me read it for you again. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the royal towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and a day on which they send gifts gifts of food to one another. So after surviving this existential threat, the Jews did what every person does when they've overcome a significant challenge. They celebrate. In this place, we're we're told that it's a gladness and feasting and sharing gifts with others, but, but it didn't stop there. If you look at verses 20 through 22, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Asherah, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So Mordecai, who is the prime minister now, the number two guy in the kingdom, appears to know something that the Jews perhaps have not fully realized. And I I have underlined that something in verse 22. It says there that the Jews got relief. Now, I want you to notice something. Again, you know, grammar matters. And I I know I butcher uh, pronunciation at times. And my grammar, I I mix up I's and me's all the time. But grammar does matter. And and the the word got relief there, it's passive. It's telling us the Jews didn't save themselves. There's actually a theological term for that passive. It's called the the divine passive, which means that, that God is actually the agent who is doing the work. The Jews got, the Jews received, they were given whatever word you want to use, 
relief from their enemies. And that relief from the enemies uh, didn't come from themselves. It didn't come from Esther. It didn't come from Mordecai. It didn't come from the king. The Jews were saved by God. And because they've been saved by God, Mordecai doesn't want them to miss praising God in the process. And he doesn't want them to forget. And so he declares in verses 20 through 28, and Queen Esther reaffirms in verses 29 to 32, that there should be this annual time of celebration of this amazing gift that that God has provided for them, and that they are obligated to celebrate it. And, And this is the Jewish feast of Purim. And Purim comes from the Hebrew word pur, which is singular. Purim is the plural which means lot, and it refers to the, the lot, the die that was cast by, by Haman when he set the date for when the Jews were to be exterminated, but it also refers to the lot, the destiny that God has for his people. So there's this double meaning that's going on here, and we see uh, this second meaning in Psalm 16 when the psalmist says this, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see, God is the one who who ultimately determines your lot and my lot, your destiny and my destiny. Now, now, Don't misunderstand me. We play an important role in this entire process of determining the course of our lives, but we do that in coordination and in submission, ultimately, to God's will. And the purpose of this annual celebration of Purim was to ensure that the Jews would never forget what God had actually done for them. And this is what's remarkable. They haven't. For the last 2,500 years, faithful Jews celebrate Purim. For the last 2,500 years, every year, they celebrate it. And they don't only do it by themselves or for themselves. They do it for their kids because they want their kids to remember and to not forget what God has done in their lives. And you know, it's easy to forget what God has done in our lives. It's easy to to forget the amazing things that he has done in the past when we are especially in the midst of struggles in the present. And if it's easy for us to forget it, how much easier is it for our kids to forget it? That's why in Deuteronomy 6 we read these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your hearts. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you should talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, 
and when you lie down and when you rise. You see, the great things that, that God has done in your life and the great things that God has done in my life, we are called to, to remember them, we're called to, to celebrate them, and we're called to, to teach them to our children and our children's children so that they might see the great work that God has done in our lives. And I, I think about my own life. My three kids need to understand what God has done in my life. My, my kids need to, to understand that, that back in 1982, when I was a senior in high school, God wrecked every plan that I had. I didn't know God. I, I went to church, but I was completely lost. And, and, and God took dreams that I had from being a little boy of being a naval aviator, and he trashed them. All because one eye turns out to be 2025. And he took away the college that I wanted to go to because my parents hadn't saved up money for college and I had to turn down the Navy scholarship. And God put me in a Christian college which was the last place on the face of the planet that I ever wanted to be. And there God, after wrecking my life, back in November of 1982, on the chapel steps of Harbison Chapel, right in front of the altar at Grove City College, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And they need to learn how after that moment that, that, that God brought Kathy into my life, I couldn't find a girl who would date me more than two months. When Kathy dated me longer, two months one day, I knew I had to keep her. My kids needed to know that. They need to know how that God had, had to move us from, from Pennsylvania to Southern California with a job move, that I was going there purely because of the job. And there he would show us the beauty of what church planning looks like. They need to understand the, the process that we went through for, for God to bring Nicole into our lives to adoption, how, how God led us to seminary and provided for our needs, how how. We, how God started living water with only four families and, and a couple little kids. How on that first Sunday that we had a grand opening, it was like five inches of snow. And how the parking lot was plowed by the Central Dolphin School District on a Sunday morning. They need to know that. Our kids need to know how, how God grew the church and how he refined the church and how he refined me and Kathy in the process. How he gave us these 28 acres of property for $250,000. They need to understand that. They need to know how he carried us through COVID and how he's working now. These are great deliverances. And they demand great celebrations. And folks, that's just my life. That part of the message took me about five minutes to write. And I bet if you would sit down this afternoon and you would take five minutes and you would begin to write down what are the things that God has done in your life and you put that in a little envelope one day and you gather your, 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 your kids around or your nieces or nephews around or, or your friends around, it would do your soul good to remember the great work that God has done. Now, in the midst of all of that, those bullet points that I have right there, in between those little bullet points, there are people dying 
in my life. There is brokenness that has happened in my life. There is sin that has happened in my life. But God is working in the midst of, of all of those things. So that's the first thing that we need to know. That great deliverances deserve great celebration. Number two, great deliverances elevate great leaders. Look at chapter 10. King Ashuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king, kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ashuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitudes of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Now, I find it really interesting how chapter 10 starts out with verse 1. I mean, it's like random. Well, the, the king imposed a, a tax. What in the world does that mean? Why in the world is, is that actually written there? I mean, what's novel about that? Right? I mean, governments, they, they're great at passing taxes. They go to school to learn how to pass taxes. I mean, that's what they do. It's no big deal. Why mention it? Now, in some ways, your guess is as good as mine. But from my perspective, the reason that's there is for one sole purpose. Life is back to normal. The government is doing what the government has done. The, the crisis has been averted, and, and we're back to, to raking in revenue. But not everything is back to normal. Something significant has changed. You see, there, there has been a, a change of administration. There is a, 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 a new prime minister is in office. A, a new sheriff is in town. His name is Mordecai. And my, oh my, is he far different than his predecessor. Way different. You see, God didn't just deliver the Jews. By raising up Mordecai, he delivered up all of Persia. He blessed the entire nation by giving them a still flawed, but ultimately a God-fearing leader. And we need to understand something. Leaders matter. Leaders matter in our government. Leaders matter in our church. They matter in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, on our teams that we participate in. And the Bible attests to this in multiple places. And brothers and sisters, we... We would do well, what, what I'm about to put on the screen here, we would do well to burn these into our minds. Because we live in an amazing place that allows us to choose our leaders. 
There are not many places that get to do what we do. And many times we're all a bunch of knuckleheads because we choose our leaders completely contrary to the way that we should choose our leaders. We choose our our, our leaders who we think they look good or they smell good or they talk good. They, They may support this position that we like, whatever. But, but we don't choose our leaders in a godly fashion. This is what the Bible has to say about leaders. Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. How many times have you gone into a voting booth and chose the most righteous person? Proverbs 11. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Here's a couple extra bonus ones. Proverbs 28. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. In verse 28 of 28. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. God wants us to know that our leaders matter. Be it pastors, elders, township commissioners, council members, mayors, uh, district attorneys, governors, legislators, judges, presidents, even the, the stinking local dog catcher matters. People who are in leadership positions, they matter. And if those in leadership are righteous, people are blessed. And if they're wicked, people suffer. And we know that is true. Just take an objective look at whatever community that you live in. Is is righteousness going up? You're darn tootin', there's probably a righteous leader in there. Is, is wickedness flourishing? All you got to do is look to the leaders. That's the way that it works. Great communities led by great leaders. Struggling, not-so-great communities typically led by poor leaders. Folks, you and I, we get what we choose. We get it. Mordecai, he wasn't perfect. Far from perfect. But verse 3 tells us that he's a good leader. He's second in rank to the king, which means what? He's serving the king well. What else is he? He's great among the Jews, popular with a multitude of his brothers, which means what? He's not only serving the king well, he's serving the people well. He sought the welfare of the people. He didn't seek his own welfare. When people go into elected office and they got a hundred bucks in their pocket, and when they come out of elected office and they got a million dollars in the pocket, that's the problem. That's America. 
That's not Mordecai. Mordecai what? He is seeking the welfare of the people. He is making himself less so the people can become more. And finally, we're told that he is a man of peace. Who in elected office, whether they got a D on the end of their name, an R on the end of their name, or an I on the end of their name, who in elected office comes to mind? I'm not going to name anybody, but who comes to mind that you can say they are a man or woman of peace? Rather than a man or woman of division. But there was a problem. Which brings me to my third and final point. Surely, great deliverances lead to great celebrations. And great deliverances elevate great leaders. But you know what? Those first two, they are completely temporal. Esther and Mordecai may have been engaged in saving the Jews from deaths at the hands of Haman, but they can't save the Jews from death at the hands of sin. As such, the Jews living in Persia 2,500 years ago, they needed a, a greater deliverance, one, one that would ultimately set them free from the domain of sin and death. And you and I, we need that same deliverance. And that brings me to the final point, and it is this. The greatest deliverance comes from the greatest deliverer. The greatest deliverance comes from the greatest deliverer. You see, everything in the Bible, it all points to Jesus. And Esther just happens to really super point to Jesus. You see, when it comes to enemies, sin makes Haman look like a choir boy. Sin makes him look wonderful. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, he gives us this warning. You see, we need to understand, sin is the great enemy. It kills not just the body. It kills the soul. And this is what Ezekiel says. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Put simply, you and I, we're responsible solely, individually, for our own sin. We don't get to blame mom and dad. We can try. It's not going to work with God. We can't blame our upbringing. We can't blame our school system, our community, our lack of opportunity. We can't even blame the prejudice or the privilege that we have or haven't experienced. Our sin is our fault. My sin is my fault. Kathy doesn't make me sin. My mom and dad don't make me sin. You folks don't make me sin. I choose sin 
all on my own little choice. That didn't come out right, but that's all right. You get the idea. <laughs> Confirm my prior statement about not speaking correctly all the time. But folks, that's just the half of it. Our sin leads to death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. Now, that's a problem. But here's the bigger problem. We're incapable of saving ourselves. The Jews in Esther's day temporarily saved themselves. But they could not save themselves from the ultimate death that was coming. Every one of those Jews died. And we can't save ourselves. Why? Because our sin is ultimately too great. We need a deliverer who is greater than our sin. That deliverer has a name. It is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the greater deliverer because he is without sin. The author of Hebrews writes this about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This statement, remarkable. Because it not only declares that Jesus is without sin, but that he has been tempted in every single way that you and I are tempted. And he chose not to sin, while at least Mike Leonzo, when temptation comes his way, sometimes chooses to sin. And despite all of this temptation that came Jesus' way, he doesn't sin. Now think about this for a moment. He is tempted in every way. There's what, 250 people sitting in this room right now. If we just started writing down our temptations, he was tempted in all the things that you and I write down. We're, we're just a tiny little microcosm of, of the, all the people in all the world. And all of the temptations flowed to Jesus. Now let me put this into perspective for a moment. Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a list of sins. It's not exhaustive, but it gets to the point. Let's look at them together. I want to be down here with you looking at these. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And where such things will not inherit the kingdom of God showed up again, that's a typo on my part. But the duplication probably is helpful. Look at that list. Jesus was tempted in every one of those ways. From idolatry, 
to drunkenness, to orgies. Yet he didn't sin. And rather than being prideful in his spiritual purity and in the process, looking down on us for our spiritual impurity like we look down on others who struggle with sins that we don't struggle with, Jesus instead sympathized with our weakness and had compassion on us, but he did something even greater. He didn't just have sympathy. He didn't just have compassion. He didn't look at us and say, isn't that bad that you're struggling with sin? Isn't that a bummer that you're going to die in your sins and be forever separated from the God of the universe? No. Instead, he delivers us from the darkness of sin and death by taking our place. Listen to the beautiful words of 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus became sin on our behalf. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. He bore his Holy Father's righteous wrath against our sin. He was innocent. We are guilty. Yet he takes the punishment. But he didn't stop there. Not only does he take the punishment, but he gives us his right standing with God the Father that he learned, earned through his sinless life. And you and I are the beneficiaries of that great work when we repent of our sins and receive Christ in faith because he is the greatest deliverer who provides the greatest delivery. But there's even more. So I was writing this, I was thinking, I can't remember the, the game show, but it's like, but there's more! Folks, there's more! Listen to this. He provided us the greatest celebration far superior to Purim. For the last 2,500 years, faithful Jews have been celebrating their ancestors' delivery from death at the hands of Haman. And while their commitment to honor Purim is a beautiful thing, and while we can learn much from, from how they remember the work of God in the past, Jesus has given us something so much greater. It's called the Lord's Supper. He has given it. It's simple, yet it is totally profound. Unleavened bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. The fruit of the vine representing Jesus' blood shed for us. And we are told in God's word, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In this supper, we remember not only what he has done in the past. We remember not only him hanging on a cross, dying for us, but we look forward to the day. He's coming back on the clouds. Nobody's going to miss him. Everybody's going to be surprised because nobody knows the time or the hour, but he is coming back. And he's going to take his people home. And he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And it's going to be populated with those who would recognize their sin 
repented of it, and received him in faith. And those who tragically don't, they will be forever separated from the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, if you have repented of your sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is a celebration. And so we're going to do uh, just that right now. Uh, the way that, this is the first time I've done it with three tables. I had to have Pastor Ben come in here and uh, coach me. So uh, I'm going to explain the process. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll come and we'll get the elements. We'll hold the elements until we all have them. Then we'll stand up. We'll take them together. Then we're going to sit down again. We're going to collect an offering because I didn't know how to do this seamlessly. And then we'll sing a song, and then we will dismiss you before 1020 if I'm a good pastor. So. So, if you're coming to this table, you'll come up that row and go down that row. If you're coming to this table, you will come up this row and go down that row. If you are coming to this table, you will come up this row and go down that row. Very simple. Let me pray. Lord God, we come before you right now. and uh, Lord, we are crazy thankful that you have given us this celebration for us to remember, Lord, that, that our sins... They have been paid for. That, that for those who have repented of their sins, received your Son as Lord and Savior, that, that the slate is clean. That, that we can stand before you in judgment and know that, that, Lord, the judgment has been satisfied. It has been satisfied through your Son's shed blood. Thank you for that. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can stand before you righteous because your Son was righteous. And, Lord, now we come and... Uh, Lord, we take these elements, uh, Lord, with great joy in our hearts for what you've done in the past. Lord, great thanksgiving in our hearts for what you're going to do in our lives. And overwhelming thankgiveness and uh, anticipation, dear God, for the day that your son comes back. And Lord, all of this wickedness goes away. So Lord, we come before you now. We confess our sins quietly in these seats. We thank you quietly and we come and get these elements. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen.